This is the Always the Critic podcast where a couple friends review the latest movies, except we literally have zero qualifications to do so. Jessica, how are you doing on week five? Oh, Bro, I'm so, so tired. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't watched this much of one director in, like, I don't know when. Um, he has jumped, Hitchcock has jumped to, like, the number one director in my, like, letterbox stats. Yeah. <laughs> because oh I have watched so much in the last five weeks. I feel like I could write a thesis at this point. <laughs> like, I am so well-versed on the entire life of Hitchcock. Uh, it's incredible. It's been a crazy journey. Um, but, yeah, how are you feeling? It is, um, you know, he is one of the great auteurs of our lifetime <laughs> or, you know, in cinema in general. But yeah. if I could go the next year without watching another Hitchcock movie, I think I'd be okay. I would. Uh, yeah, I would. <laughs> I think I would be okay. Um, you know, you were saying thesis, and I was just thinking, yeah, that would be a good one. Why, you know, Rear Window is really <laughs> Alfred Hitchcock watching us. <laughs> and here's no, my 15-page yeah, essay. Yes, exactly. Uh, Welcome now, to my TED Talk. <laughs> That's how I feel. So now you may hear uh, another chuckle in the background there, and you may be wondering who that is. Uh, For this part of the episode, which we're going to talk about one of the most famous movies of all time, we are bringing on guest and friend of the show, Miguel Alberson. Hi. Welcome back. (laughs) It's it's been a long time since you've been on the show, and uh, I know that you... You in particularly love the first movie that we're going to talk about today, and that is the movie Psycho. Yes. Love that movie. Yes. So uh, Miguel is very knowledgeable on Hitchcock and in particular on Psycho. So that's Mm -hmm. why we had him come on for this part of the episode that we're really excited to talk about. So I hope you're sitting down because we've got a lot to cover on week five, the finale episode of our ATC Presents Hitchcock series. Just to quickly recap last week, we talked about Hitchcock's iconic TV presence, the remake of his own film, The Man Who Knew Too Much, the dolly shots and obsession of Vertigo, along with the pioneer Saul Bass and his amazing intro credits. We wrapped up with the highly successful North by Northwest. Now, uh, let's not waste any time. Hitchcock's first movie of the 1960s was Psycho. And so that music right there is one of the most iconic pieces of music in film of all time now for the uninitiated if for some reason you have never heard of it (laughs) psycho is about a phoenix secretary named marion crane who embezzles forty thousand dollars from her employer's client goes on the run and checks into the remote bates motel who is run by the young norman bates under the influence of his domineering mother and it stars (laughs) janet lee as marion anthony perkins as norman bates John Gavin as Sam and Vera Miles as Marion's sister Lila. Yes, so we I rewatched it. Did you rewatch it? Yes, I did. Okay, okay. So we had all already experienced Psycho before, and we're just revisiting it with a fresh lens. Um, Miguel, mm-hmm. 
why don't you start us <laughs> off, talk about Psycho in any, in any way you feel. Um, how do you feel about it? I mean... Um, I think it's one of the best suspense movies ever. Yeah. Like, ever. The sense of dread from beginning to about the middle is just nonstop. Um, it's iconic. The music, the yep. shots that he gets in this movie. This is really peak Hitchcock. This yeah. is his best work by far. Mm-hmm. And I love it. So... <laughs> I yeah so do I I love it as well and I like that there's so much to glean from it like of course there's like all this like voyeuristic tendency that is Hitchcock and so we see Marianne in like various states of undress and that sort of deal um and I think that the whole mother scenario with Norman Bates (laughs) is like it's crazy it's so entertaining it's just rocks you back on your heels and to this day it's like one of the best twists ever in a movie that you know i think john mulaney even even kind of uh makes fun of this sort of twist where he's like oh she's been dead for 40 years in his stand-up <laughs> and like that is the twist in psycho where the mother's been dead for 10 years or whatever it is so i just i think it's amazing it's it's incredible it's it's so cool. you never see it coming no you don't see it <laughs> coming <laughs> i like i do like that like hitchcock was still inserting some small pieces of comedy in this movie. And his his daughter, Patricia, is actually, in the beginning of the movie, she's the one who says, he was flirting with you. I guess he must have noticed my wedding <laughs> ring. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. <laughs> like, oh, uh, yeah. Sure. Yeah, that's why. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or the um, a joke that kills me every single time is, um, I declare... I don't. That's how I get to keep it. And he's just waving his money around. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just like that this movie, uh, it kind of foreshadows the birds, which is the next movie we're going to talk about. Spoiler alert. Because there is so much bird paraphernalia in this movie. Like birds oh, yeah. in the picture frames and a huge parlor of taxidermy and like... It's all birds. He just, Norman Bates has a huge interest in birds. And at some point he says like, I don't know much about birds, <laughs> but he has birds everywhere. <laughs> so I just. You must know a lot about birds. No, not really. Not really. I like stuffing things. <laughs> I don't really know. I don't really know much about birds. That's what he says. And They're all in a threatening pose too, like leering over every shot. They are. The shadows are so intense in this movie. <laughs> like it had no business being this intense. Um, I would like else? to interject really quick. Uh, you're okay, saying go. everything about birds, right? And yes. how the, there's even uh, some symbolism in birds because of the fact that there, <laughs> there's the term old bird. Which is yes. the mother of the speaker. Which, <sighs> since the fact that this entire movie is centered around Norman Bates' mother, and I put that in quotation mm-hmm. marks, oh. uh, the fact that it they're using the mother's voice throughout the entire movie, like that's symbolism. Just the symbolism of birds, even in the background, 
is just showing you. Yeah, he's Hitchcock was inserting every little thing that he could. Uh, even it's such an old term like, like an bird. old bird. Yeah, yeah. I like when he says you eat like a bird, implying that she is a bird. Then he says, I don't really know much about birds, meaning he doesn't know much about women. It's like, uh, <laughs> it's so much, so layered. It's um, like such a nine-sided die of a character. And it's <laughs> like, and he's so docile yes. and so unassuming and so kind and then. Surprise. <laughs> I just love how Anthony Perkins plays Norman Bates because he gives it so much weight. Like everything counts. Like all his looks and everything. As soon as Marion starts to criticize the mom, he's like and she he she suggests that he go away and all this stuff and it's like he he gets so defensive like it's a he's like she's harmless as harmless as one of these stuffed birds and it's like oh god <laughs> that means she's dead is she is she dead oh god oh, and man. same thing with even that it's like you've seen the people there peering and circling her it's mm-hmm. like oh more birds <laughs> i would have loved to have seen this movie fresh like in the theater when it came out because the fact that we know now that the mom is dead and he's like there is no mother in the house and that he's got this split personality and that marion is like threatening his Mm -hmm. mother's existence in his in his personality split personality i mean he's he goes she needs me she just goes a little mad sometimes we all go a little (laughs) mad sometimes like the weight of that would not hit us until the movie ended. And then we're like, oh my God, I have to rewatch this whole movie. We don't get that chance again. Like, I wish I no. was able to see Psycho, like, for the first time again. So much nuance. Yeah. And, like, she's just sitting there. Janet Lee just knocks out of the park. Even when she's holding perfectly skill, uh, still, she's yeah. like, she's being berated by him and just holding that sandwich, just like, uh, <laughs> like trying to find a way out. It's great. I found that. Um, <laughs> Janet Lee as Marion that she barely blinked for most of the movie. Did you guys feel yeah. like that was the case? Because she's constantly yeah. just like wide open eyes, really kind of holding that position. And then when she dies, she dies with her eyes wide open. Oh yeah, it's like she, she never was, blinks. She does she? It she was like she was always kind of like stuffed. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> oh. uh, yeah, she's like peering shot. at the guard. Yeah. Um, all of that. Like, yeah, now that I think of it, she never did blink even once. It's like hard to be like, oh my God, you blinked. You have to like count it. <laughs> yeah. Oh I thought God. that this movie in particular made me think that Hitchcock likes to punish his lady protagonists. No question. Like, yeah. all the time. Like, Marion gets slaughtered and she just stole $40,000. And then. So many other ladies, like Judy and Vertigo, she falls to her death after confessing <laughs> to being an accomplice uh, to the murder of Madeline. Like these are, I mean, they're not little things that they're these ladies are doing, but is it enough to like kill them over? Like it's like definitely a form of punishment. They don't have any. They don't get to repent. They don't get to mm-hmm. do anything. Even all of them always think twice or they're about to confess or just when they do the right thing, 
like they just die in the most brutal left field way possible Mm. like homegirl was calculating it and she was going to give back the 40k and replace the 7,000 right right (laughs) or 700 i feel like (laughs) i feel like the best like out of all the lead female leads that we've had through hitchcock's career i think the one that was treated the best was really grace kelly uh throughout Mm. her movies she was more of an ally to the protagonist or yeah um, absolutely you know was you know one-on-one was up to par with the people but um yeah some other people they it's it is uh, not great to being a leading lady in hitchcock's movies no no nope. i no. liked how norman bates <laughs> reminded me a lot of and you're gonna like this rico um the joker in the dark knight mm. with how he was so sensitive about the insane asylum and being called crazy just like the joker was always like i'm not a freak don't call me a freak like he was he's very sensitive (laughs) to that and it's because he knows something's wrong with him or something's wrong at the very least with his mother um i mean when the detective not the detective the private investigator goes to the bates motel he tells him, would you mind looking at the picture before you commit yourself? And he goes, commit myself? You sound like the police. Like, <laughs> the term commit yourself even got him on edge. So it's like very small moments of like the manic, the mania peeking out. Now, Miguel, you said that this is your favorite Hitchcock and Jessica, you love the movie. Is this the best Hitchcock movie? I don't know because I like the colors, the colorized, like Technicolor Hitchcock movies a lot. Like To Catch a Thief was amazing. North by Northwest is killer. Uh, the The Lady Vanishes is like a personal favorite of mine mm. since watching it. And Rebecca is great too. But like, it's they're different. They're just different. I think this one took a lot of narrative chances and. You know, Hitchcock was was testing the waters with the audience, I think, in most of the movies leading up to this, where he was like, well, I'll lie to them a little bit in this movie. And then in this one, he takes it to a whole new level where, like, he's lying to the audience the entire time until that John Mulaney reveal where the mother has been dead for 10 years. He, you know, it it was this huge reveal that Norman Bates killed his mom and her lover and it's like this is comes late and then the whole thing with killing off the protagonist early oh yeah we still feel the ripples effect ripple effects of that all these years later look at scream just right Mm -hmm. off the top of my head yeah look at chris brown in that movie that he did uh stomp the (laughs) yard that's it (laughs) and then quickly look away and never look back Yeah, it's it's a common thing now. Not common, but I think it's more expected to see a big star getting cast mm. in a movie and then they get killed off right away. That yeah. that is from Psycho. Like he did that first in Psycho. Oh, uh, yeah, this other movie, um, Side Effects. Oh yeah, Channing Tatum. And Channing all of Tatum them. gets killed. Yeah. Yep. Super early on. So, um. I think it's his. I think it's his best, just because of the acting more than anything. 
Like, there's really nothing that feels... Well, we'll get into the one thing. But there's nothing that really feels hammy or... the Acting-wise, like, they still have the transatlantic accents. Mm -hmm. But nobody there is, like, really overselling it. Like, oh, dear Charlie, I swear. Like, like (laughs) it's very grounded. There's an affair in the opening that's very raw and real for its time. Um, the characters all really have a straight face. The motives are pretty set set and straightforward. I think it's his best. Hmm. Uh, it's certainly his best suspense movie to me, I think. Um, yeah, just because of the fact that I've been so, you know, steeped into Hitchcock for the last few weeks, you know, I found myself comparing it with what I had seen already. Uh, mm-hmm. But it, it does truly stand on its own in, in certain aspects uh, just the use of the music's amazing in this movie. Amazing, yeah. Uh, and the way it's used at the right times, at certain times, um, the way uh, the camera, the way it looks on people, like mm-hmm. the way it's like in your face, like in certain moments, like certain things are happening, and it's like right in your face. The way it's shot, I think, is well done, and. It really is hard to compare with some of his older movies because none of his movies kind of really get to this point. And none of them truly uh, dive into the aspect of the psychological. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's a couple of things you like Spellbound. A... Yeah. Yeah, but that, that was like one, a weak attempt at that. Or, you know, it wasn't really strong. Um, but this is like one of the strongest, you know, uses of psychology and you know split personality and you know what causes that what is you know everything that surrounds that and i think Mm -hmm. it's amazing in it you see it now in in movies nowadays how that influence of psycho has like split the movie split Split, is you know a riff off of this condition that was not at this is 1960 this is right. not a com- like this was not a common you know era of expertise people didn't just frankly know offhand all of these mental um um it, all this mental instability it wasn't it wasn't a big thing at the time for them to have to explain it at the end meant that there were people in the audience that wouldn't get it Oh, they explained it all right. <laughs> so I think that's a good transition right there because um, mm. this is something that I know that my brother can talk about. But we've been, pl- you know, applauding this movie for its genius, for how revolutionary revolutionary it was. Uh, but are there any things that you would say to criticize the movie? Any faults, any flaws that you would say, Miguel, it does sound like you do have something about that. The only flaw is one that I understand was necessary for the time. But it is, for me, the psychiatrist at the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. It's a very long monologue. And there's a couple of problems with that. First, it feels like he reiterates the same point about three different times. (laughs) Um, And they ask him, so he's a transvestite? No, not really. And he goes and he repeats (laughs) the same three paragraphs again. It... uh, I had read online, somebody said that if people walked out of the theater at that time, they're like, oh, okay, he's a sex pervert, and they would have gone home, and that's it. Mm. So I get why it's necessary. In that time, in that context, it makes perfect sense. But that whole thing could have been way shorter, like Mm. about two paragraphs shorter. Mm -hmm. 
Um, also, the actor who was playing the psychiatrist was the only one who felt like he was from the older Hitchcock movies. He felt like oh. a remnant of that, like, very clownish Cary Grant, yeah. like... Um, what's his name? The same thing happened in Rope, too, with, um, help me out here. What's his name? Jimmy Stewart. Uh, yeah, like, did you think you were God, Brandon? Yeah. It's, (laughs) it's a lot. But it's necessary for the time. Um, but if that's the only flaw, the movie has a lot going for it. Even, um, what's his name? Robert Ebert? Uh, Roger Ebert, sorry. Ah. (laughs) Roger Ebert recommended they could cut it by a certain amount of time. Fans even made a fan edit of the movie, and it actually works better. Mm-hmm. They, they just co- cut it by two minutes. It's a five-minute monologue. Yeah, yeah. Mm-mm. You feel that. I think you feel that five minutes, especially in today. If today's audience watches it, we're used to not a lot of explanation when it comes to uh, movies. And especially, I mean, even in other mediums, like not just like live action, like consider Perfect Blue oh yeah which Mm is a lot of stuff (laughs) happens off screen where you don't see it and we never do and that's Mm -hmm. perfect that's part of the charm of the movie it's like that's what makes it good so you know for them to kind of sit through and explain it it is a little like oh okay but then i think hitchcock kind of pays it off oh yeah with that closing shot uh after they hand mrs bates the blanket <laughs> still <laughs> using the voice thank you it's i like, know oh my god it's 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 a feat man <laughs> to make it seem like he can actually do that voice but uh, you know it's part of it it's part of the whole <laughs> split personality uh um, man but how this... about that one frame that one frame where um he looks up and they superimpose they her superimpose skull on her face. skull and then they fade into the, <laughs> the, the car. car getting taken out of the mire. It's like, it is such a perfect ending that I forgive the psycholo- the psychiatrist coming in and like giving us the play-by-play when, you know, it could have been shorter. It could have been not in there at all. But that ending is like, saves it, I think. It's his best ending, too, even mm. by way of editing, because all of his movies kind of just end yeah. in the middle of a sentence. And it's like, oh, is that it? <laughs> like, yeah, is it over? It's like, he's the killer. <laughs> I guess it's just you on me, Brandon. <laughs> and they... What about, yeah. um... you know what, though? Something I've noticed about Hitchcock. I've seen all the movies and watching you guys watch it in my periphery. It kind of solidified my opinion that I think that Hitchcock is very much a cutting room floor director. All of his stuff is practice. All of his stuff is extra work. If you look at it, like none of them are really perfect. Every few movies amounts to something. And each one of them is trying something very different. And that's even more obvious when you watch like his show, which that's a whole train wreck. Nobody <laughs> has time to get into. But... He's one of the few directors that you can see him practicing and experimenting with all his movies. And I think mm-hmm. that's why this one pays off so well. It's yeah. the perfect blend of everything he tried to do before this. Yeah, I, think. I would agree too. Um, you're talking about certain scenes that might not be holding up. I think that when, what is his name, Arbogast? 
Yeah. When he falls down the stairs, <laughs> I kind of check out because what they did, they obviously he wasn't really falling. They shot it. Um, he was like sitting comfortably on a chair and just like waving about, <laughs> simulating falling down the stairs. And then they had shot the falling sequence of in the background for him. Um, oh, I think that is kind of a cheesy shot. And I don't know how I would fix it today. Like maybe I just would have a stunt person actually fall. But I think Hitchcock wanted the shock on the guy's face as well to play into like the horror of it all and you know keep the focus on him because you still want to keep the mystery of mrs bates so i would argue that that's kind of a weak point the way it looks hasn't aged very well but yeah and also the mechanics of how he falls doesn't make any sense either because she just like stabs him and he starts flailing down the stairs he would hit some steps on the way down sure saw an interview with Hitchcock (laughs) talking about it and he was like well you wouldn't just fall you would try and fight the fall as you went down which is the logic behind him kind of like like ab workout a little bit but I still don't think it's a very strong look anyway it doesn't work (laughs) it's not yeah did you have anything to add Uh, in terms of bad or criticisms i think um you guys have nailed both of them on the head um that is such a like (laughs) a sign of its time of doing practical effects um yeah you know showing him falling down but it's not a very good even like (laughs) a couple years later it's already dated uh and then you know having that long monologue at the end yeah we understand it now but you know for for that time period i can understand how people would be like I don't get it. Is is he a pervert or he's transvestite? Yeah. Like people not understanding and you have to like hammer it home. No, he's got a problem mentally. And you know, so. Imagine the car ride home for those theater goers. And <laughs> just like, so was he a transvestite? No, Gladys. <laughs> <laughs> no, Gladys. Uh, so I think those are the really, I think there's not really other faults you can really peg on the movie. Only because Mm-mm. the performances are so strong. You have mm-hmm. uh, Janet Lee, who's an amazing scream queen, um, just amazing performance. Uh, yeah, and of course, uh, Norman Bates. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, one of the most Anthony iconic Perkins. characters in movie history, with mm-hmm. one of the most iconic amazing. ending shots in movie history. Like those things. There's a reason why they work so well, and the, there's a reason why they're iconic. Is because they work and they're good, and they're they are the stepping stone for future, you know, filmmakers to do things to stack on that foundation. That was the foundation for our mm-hmm. modern suspense and modern thrillers. Mm-hmm. Yep. Amazing. Just incredible. <laughs> it just. I mean, and. An actual psycho, you know, like a straight face the whole way. A whole, it's phenomenal. Yep. God, I can watch it again, and I think I will. 
Now, we are going to go ahead and we're going to continue speaking about some of the behind the scenes stuff. But before we do that, I want to thank Miguel Barrison for joining us on this episode and for talking about one of the greatest movies of all time. Anytime. (laughs) Thanks for having me. All right. No problem. And we will see you soon. This movie is kind of the perfect storm as far as the talent behind the camera goes. Hitch Running Point is director with music composed by Bernard Herman. Herman had already worked with Hitch on five previous films, including Vertigo and North by Northwest. So you have Herman to thank for the iconic stabbing theme in Psycho, and that's been used literally everywhere since. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, yes, we'll talk more about this later. Um, John L. Russell is DP. He was DP for nearly a hundred of Hitchcock's TV show episodes, which is why the look and feels kind of TV movie. Um, George Tomasini as editor. He'd been editing Hitchcock's film since Rear Window in 1954. And then, of course, Saul Bass as the titles designer and pictorial consultant. Legit, the only thing missing was a wardrobe by Edith Head. Yeah, it really was the only thing missing. Now, Psycho is based on a novel by Robert Block. Hitchcock bought the rights anonymously just for $9,000. And to keep the ending more of a secret, he bought as many copies of the book as he could. Screenwriter Joseph Stefano adapted the story. Stefano is basically only famous for writing Psycho. He was, unfortunately, more of a one-hit wonder. But he's responsible for a lot of the good changes. Like, for example, he thought that the book's story was weak with starting with and focusing on Norman Bates, who was short, fat, older, and totally unlike the tall, lanky, and handsome young Anthony Perkins. Stefano suggested they focus on Marion Crane in the first half of the movie, then switch to Norman Bates after the shocking murder. Hitchcock loved the idea, especially killing off the leading lady relatively quickly. Stefano wanted to see a flushing toilet on screen to display some much-needed realism, and Hitchcock told him basically that if he wanted to see it, he needed to write it into the script. So he did, creating the scene where Marion adds up the money and then flushes the ripped pieces of paper down the toilet. This way, the scene was essential and couldn't be removed by the censors. Because of Stefano's persistence, Psycho is the first American movie to ever show a flushing toilet on screen. Also, the word transvestite was a problem for the censors. Stefano had to prove that it was a clinical psychology term and not some vulgarity that he made up. That is uh, pretty crazy uh, there. <laughs> uh, now, <laughs> Right? <laughs> yeah, I know. Now, uh, Janet Lee, let's talk about her because she yeah. is, again, one of the most important and famous actresses in this genre of suspense and thriller. Uh, she was cast mm-hmm. as Marion Crane. Uh, Hitchcock avoided huge names for the psycho cast, except for Janet Lee. He knew audiences would be shocked if she was killed early, off early in the movie. Yeah, so to this day, people boil down her entire career to that one role. I thought it was interesting that before she was a Hitchcock girl, Hitchcock girl, uh, she played Meg in the 1949 version of Little Women, and she also starred in Angels in the Outfield from 1951. I had literally no idea that Angels in the Outfield was a remake. I grew up on the 1994 movie with Tony Danza, Danny Glover, Christopher Lloyd, and of course, JGL. 
Yeah, I had no idea either. That that came to a surprise to, to find that out. Now, yeah. uh, Janet Lee has said that when he cast her, Hitchcock told her, I hired you because you are an actress. I will only direct you if A, you attempt to take more than your share of the pie, B, you don't take enough, or C, if you are having problems, or I'm sorry, you are having trouble motivating the necessary timed movement. This is par for the course for Hitchcock, who really didn't direct his actors. He was very hands-off and trusted that they could deliver what he wanted. When Psycho turned out to be such a huge hit, Hitchcock did something totally out of character, and he severed his working relationship with Janet Lee. He said that she would always be remembered for her on-screen death in Psycho. For someone who favored his starlets and did multiple movies with his leading ladies, this was a big deal. Yeah. Um, so we're moving on to Anthony Perkins. Anthony Perkins played Norman Bates. So on the other hand, Anthony Perkins came from the world of theater and he was just an up and coming actor when he was cast as Norman Bates. Both he and Janet Lee were allowed to improvise their roles to a certain extent, which is rare for Hitchcock to give up control like that. But it was Perkins who came up with the Norman's uh, habit of constantly and nervously eating candy corn. And just like Janet Lee, Anthony Perkins' career was essentially haunted by his turn as the manic, split-personality Norman Bates. But Perkins seemed to take it all in stride and appreciated the role that made him so memorable. He said at one time, I have a lot of affection for Norman Bates and a lot of sympathy. So does the audience, I think. He's not just a monster, he's tortured. The real secret of the Psycho movies is that their tragedies first and horror movies second, end quote. He reprised his role in three Psycho sequels in 1983, 1986, and 1990. Because she's innocent at this point. But after she steals the $40,000, lo and behold, she's shown wearing a black bra and carrying a black purse now that she's done something evil and wrong. Ah, very good use of color there to signify mm-hmm. our character. Now, Hitchcock Especially wanted since to... it's a black and white movie. <laughs> ah, there you go. Now, Hitchcock wanted to close the gap on the audience becoming a voyeur and deliberately used a 50 millimeter lens on a 35 millimeter camera which gives the closest approximation to human vision. And we've mentioned the use of mirrors in his other films, like Vertigo, to signal an identity crisis or some other character flaw. But in this movie, everyone except Norman Bates is seen in a mirror. The high angle above the stairs in the Bates house, the one where it's as if the audience is looking down from the ceiling, was done by placing the camera in a cage hung from the rails on the ceiling. The Bates House was modeled on a 1925 oil painting called House by the Railroad, which is in the Museum of Modern Art in New York. The architecture of the building and even the angle at which it is shown is copied from the art. 
Speaking of art, when Norman peeps through the hole in the parlor to spy on Marion, the painting he takes off the wall is a 1610 painting called Susanna and the Elders, and it depicts a woman with two men lurking above her while she is taking a bath. And, uh, oh, by the way, this picture has great significance. Let's talk about the shower murder scene. The scene reportedly took a week to shoot, used more than 78 different shot setups, 52 cuts, and only lasted 45 seconds. I think it's common movie trivia knowledge that Hitchcock used chocolate syrup to simulate blood, and the stabbing noise is the sound of a knife stabbing a cassava melon. Hitchcock had the sound team stab dozens of different melons to see which one sounded the best or worse, depending on how you look at it. Along with the melon, they stabbed a sirloin steak. <laughs> That's not really going to work. <laughs> and also, 52 cuts on a 45-second <laughs> clip yep. is hilarious. Uh, reminds <laughs> me of a certain movie. I'll talk about it later. But that had like 13 cuts in 10 seconds. It's hilarious. <laughs> now, it's a great source of contention whether Janet Lee was in the shower scene or if it was a body double. It's a question that a lot of people asked. Janet Lee says it was all her and that she wore moleskin adhesive patches to cover her private parts while she was filming the shower scene, but that the warm water eventually washed off the moleskin. Hitchcock apparently did one more take and that take was used in the final cut. I think it's more of a balancing act. Uh, shots of Janet Lee for sure, but also more graphic shots were done with body double Marley Renfro, who soon after became a Playboy bunny. Specifically, Renfro did the shot where you can see the knife is against Marion's stomach and Marion's hand is pulling the shower curtain down. To achieve that stomach-stabbing shot, look, they used a prop knife and pulled it away. Then the shot was reversed to make it look like a stabbing. Renfro was also used for the scene of Marion's body being wrapped in the shower curtain. Although Janet Lee didn't have any issues filming the shower murder, seeing the finished product made her realize how vulnerable a woman was in the shower. So for the rest of her life, she always took baths and left the bathroom door unlocked and open. I mean, imagine your work leaving you a little bit scarred afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. Quite a bit. Now, Anthony Perkins did not film that scene at all. In fact, he was in New York rehearsing for a play he was going to be in. A woman double whose face was painted black was used to pull back the curtain. It also took something like 26 takes to get the scene right, where the camera slowly pulls back from Marion's eye. But even so, Hitchcock's wife Alma noticed that Janet Lee taking a breath in post-production. There was no way to do reshoots with a low budget and with Lee being unavailable, so Hitchcock had to cut away to the shower head to cover the mistake. I like how when Norman realizes his mother has mother in quotations has gone homicidal, he screams, Mother, oh God, blood, blood. And Hitchcock had the bass frequencies removed from Anthony Perkins's voice, so he sounded younger, more like a scared teenager. That's such a subtle thing to EQ his voice, but I think it had the intended effect. Movie magic, for sure. Now, mm -hmm. despite the attention to detail, the censors had major issues with the scene and its perceived nudity, saying that they saw Janet Lee's breasts. A lot of people might already know what Hitchcock did to appease the censors. He did absolutely nothing. He waited a few days and then sent the movie back through approval 
unedited. And it passed the inspection because of course it did. <laughs> <laughs> Switching to talking about the music in Psycho, compor- composer Bernard Herrmann used only strings in his score, which was a rarity for film music because strings were mostly associated with romantic stories. Horror movies at the time relied on crashing cymbals, horns, timpani, harsh clarinets to make a sound that was heavier and jarring. Herman called his score black and white music. Hmm. Very interesting. Now, the murder scene, the shower murder scene, consisted of a group violinist sawing the same note over and over. And Herman called it a return to pure ice water, end quote. Herman understood Hitchcock and, in general, worked well with him, saying, Hitchcock deals rarely with character portrayal or has little or no interest in people's emotions. His interest in music is only in relation to how the suspense can be heightened, end quote. I think that Psycho, maybe more than the movies that came before it, is really interested in character portrayal, so it's interesting that Herman should say that, although he's right that the music he created did heighten the suspense. Yeah. To no one's surprise, shooting wrapped nine days late, and a couple months later, the rough cut was finished. Hitchcock was very disappointed in it. He thought his experiment had failed, and he was considering splitting the movie into two episodes for his TV show. But after Bernard Herrmann got a hold of the movie and scored the entire thing, Hitchcock was thrilled with the effect it had, and he had renewed faith the movie could be successful. He even decided to double Herrmann's salary, saying that his score was responsible for 33% of the film impact yes movie composers Ooh. getting their due yo all right now there's another character we haven't talked about here and that is mrs bates okay so there's loads of directors and productions nowadays that keep a tight ship to avoid leaks and spoilers jj abrams comes to mind we already said that hitchcock was mass buying copies of the book of the story that it was based on in order to conceal the ending Hitchcock took it one step further with the character of Mrs. Bates. On set, he had a canvas chair with Mrs. Bates written on the back, so everyone was wondering who was playing her. He even teased to the press that Dame Judith Anderson, the actress who played Mrs. Danvers in Rebecca, we covered that in week one, by the way, so if you want to check that episode out, uh, scroll back in your podcast player feed. So they assumed that she would be playing Mrs. Bates. In reality, there was no Mrs. Bates, at least on set. Three actors recorded the dialogue for Mrs. Bates, Virginia Gregg, Jeanette Nolan, and Paul Jasmine, and their voices were mixed in post-production. The last speech, though, is all Virginia Gregg. I looked her up, and Gregg, funny fun fact, is actually in one of my favorite Twilight Zone episodes called The Masks. Oh, that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Now, a word on Hitchcock and his penchant for pranks we've mentioned this before to test how terrifying the mrs bates corpse was he put it in janet lee's dressing room and waited to hear her loud scream when she found it (laughs) rude isn't that so rude hitchcock yeah so we talked about the ending of the movie already with the uh, psychiatrist um well hitchcock hated the ending uh 
because the psychiatrist was basically explaining the entire movie. It was uh, just one big exposition dump, and he thought it was boring. The studio pressured him into putting the scene in to ease up on the gas, essentially come down from the intensity of the rest of the movie, and explain what happened to any audience members who weren't connecting the dots. Well, critics agreed with Hitchcock, counting it as the worst scene in the movie, possibly one of Hitchcock's worst ever. Fun fact, actor Simon Oakland nailed the psychiatrist monologue on the first take. First take? Wow. Okay. Yo. Nice. Yeah. So we've talked about Rope, To Catch a Thief, Vertigo, and North by Northwest. These are all in color. So why does Psycho masquerade as a much older movie with it still being in black and white? Well, a combination of factors. Hitchcock thought the slasher movie might be too gory in color, but mostly the movie was shot on a shoestring budget, just under $1 million. Why such a small budget? A few reasons float around. One is that Hitchcock was experimenting. If all these bad, cheap, black-and-white B-movies were cleaning up at the box office, maybe he could make a great, cheap, black-and-white movie, not the star-studded, high-budget movies he'd been making for the past two decades. Now, also, Hitchcock greatly admired the French horror movie Diabolique. I want to say it's French. Diabolique. (laughs) Yes. uh, Our uh, pronunciations are, I don't know if they're getting better or worse (laughs) as we go along. But Diabolique from 1955, which is in black and white. He loved the original French novel that the movie is based on so much that he tried to buy the rights to it back in, in the 1950s. But he got scooped by another director. Diabolique seems to be a blueprint for Psycho since it's a suspense thriller with a bathtub murder scene in the middle of it and a twist ending. Apparently, some think the infamous shower murder in Psycho is a ripoff of the Diabolique tub murder. I think perhaps the most likely reason for making a cheap black and white slasher movie was because Paramount didn't like the source material and thus gave him a small budget to work with. They had so little faith in the project and Hitchcock was so committed to the project that Hitchcock deferred his usual $250,000 salary. That's $2 million in today's 2020 dollars. And Paramount agreed to defer most of the box office take, 60% to be exact. To Hitchcock. Well, when the movie became a slipper, sleeper hit, Hitchcock walked away with more than $15 million, which is $130 million in today's 2020 dollars. Funny story. Um, the director, Todd Phillips, who we now know as the director of The Joker, but before that, he was the director of The Hangover. And when he made that movie, he gave up his director fee and wanted back end And when that movie crushed at the box office, he ended up making over over a hundred million dollars just because of how much it made after. So uh, studios, man, studios uh, (laughs) don't know what they They haven't wised up. No, they haven't wised up at all. Now, needless to say, this was the last movie Hitchcock made for Paramount Pictures. But the relationship was over before the movie even wrapped up its filming. Hitchcock moved the entire production over to the Universal Pictures lot, where he was already filming his TV show. And his crew consisted mostly of the TV show alum, which helped with the budget. Universal would end up distributing Psycho as well. The official trailer, which we heard a snippet of earlier, was over six minutes long. 
This would never happen today. And in the trailer, Hitchcock takes you through the set. The end of the trailer says, the picture you must see from the beginning, or not at all, for no one will be seated after the start of Alfred Hitchcock's greatest shocker, Psycho. And that's because at this time, movie theaters were still pretty bustling even after the movie started. And because there's a huge twist halfway through the movie, Hitchcock didn't want anyone wondering where Janet Lee was if they happened to come in more than 45 minutes late. So the publicity campaign included all these explicit warnings that no one will be led into the picture once it started. That's nuts. Uh, but then again, <laughs> people are the worst when going to the theater, so you can't really expect anything better nowadays. Anyway, now... No press screenings were held, which upset the film critics, who had to see the movie in general audience. But no one really knew what they were going to experience. Everyone was absolutely shocked at the shower murder. And I don't think it's an understatement to say that the movie changed cinema forever. Audiences loved Psycho, and the box office receipts proved it. The movie also garnered four Oscar nominations, including one for the Best Cinematography and Best Director. Janet Leigh happened to win a Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress. A few main actors reprise their roles in a few sequels, and we'll just mention the Shot for Shot remake from 1998, which I think people would rather forget. For sure. Now, Hitchcock is slowing down on the movie front because it takes another three years before his next movie, The Birds, is released in 1963. We already mentioned his strike with Paramount, so The Birds, along with its his last six films, were all released by Universal. The synopsis reads as follows for the movie The Birds. Chic socialite Melanie Daniels enjoys a passing flirtation with an eligible attorney in a San Francisco pet shop, and on an impulse, she follows him to his hometown bearing a gift of lovebirds. But upon her arrival, the bird population runs amok. Suddenly, the townsfolk face a massive avian onslaught with the feathered friends inexplicably attacking people all over Bodega Bay. It stars Tippi Hedren, Rod Taylor, Suzanne Plachette, and Jessica Tandy. Now, Tippi Hedren was doing some modeling at the time, uh, but when Hitchcock saw her in a TV commercial that aired during the Today Show, he immediately called up his people and told them to find the girl from the commercial. A few days later, he offered her a contract with him without her ever having met him. Only after signing a seven-year contract with Hitchcock did she finally meet him. Good Lord, seven-year contract. Yeah. Anyway, so she had to go through an extensive screen test, which saw her act in three totally different Hitchcock movies, Rebecca, Notorious, and To Catch a Thief. And Edith Head worked with her in designing her costume for the screen test and personal wardrobe. Her first role was Melanie in The Birds. She says that she didn't expect to be the lead actress, especially since she was a nobody. She thought that he wanted to cast her in one of his TV episodes, but Hitchcock advocated for her and had complete faith in her that she could do it, unlike the Universal executives who were pretty ruthless in questioning if she could carry the movie. Okay, so we watched The Birds. Uh, this is also a rewatch for me. Did, did you happen to catch The Birds earlier in Just, your life? This this was a rewatch for me as well. Okay, so I love the birds i loved it when i first saw it and it's just one of those movies that i think stands up really well um 
I am still kind of terrified of it. I was watching it earlier and uh, my parents walked by and my dad was like, this movie really just scared me as a kid. And my mom was like, yeah, this is pretty terrifying. And it absolutely is like the suspense and the, the, the scariness of the situation of being attacked by birds. And like, there's literally nothing you can do about it. It, And the mystery of it all, like that's, it's amazing how he did that in this movie. So I am on the complete opposite side of you. (gasps) I don't think this movie is very good. I don't think it's scary. I get annoyed through the, the bird scenes when they start attacking. Like, I I honestly, especially on the rewatch, I found myself bored with a lot of the stuff in the movie. Holy crap. Yeah, we're like completely opposite Whoa. on this one. I, I really like this movie. And I think um, I have a friend of mine who doesn't like watching black and white movies. And I was like, okay, fine, let's watch The Birds. And this was like over a decade ago. And mm-hmm. I just remember her being like, I'm really scared. Like, can you turn it off? Wow. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, wow, I can't believe we're totally on different sides on this one because I I adore the birds. It's really good. I love the wardrobe, but, you know, Edith Head worked on all of that costuming, and I just think it's unusual. It's such an unusual, fantastic story. And um, I I just think that, again, she's being punished, same as Psycho, uh, Janet Lee, and, and the other ladies uh, that we talked about. But it's such a weird form of punishment that she takes. And for what? I like. I don't know. Still to this day, I'm like, why exactly? For doing pranks? For doing a prank? Yeah. Which I don't know what the... It, it wasn't even like a prank to like make them look foolish or anything. It was more like... No, no, no. I'm delivering these birds because we talked about them and you mentioned you had a sister and so I'm going to leave these birds in your house. Yeah, she definitely went out of her way and it's not something that the regular person would think to do. Like, let me prank this person by giving them, buying them lovebirds, driving all the way out to their house, finding out where they live, finding out the name of his younger sister and addressing it to her and like not going through the front of the house renting a boat to go to the back of the house and leave it. It's like, it's so elaborate. And I don't know if a lot of people understand why she did like, she's a huge prankster. That character is so committed to the prank. She landed in court for one of her pranks. And that's how he knows her. Like that. He's like, I saw you in court. (laughs) So I think that's kind of baffles some people as well is that she's it's such a weird reason for her to go out there in the first place to bodega bay and then she just lies through her teeth why she's there and then the birds attack her as soon as she kind of comes back to leave it's like you can't leave (laughs) without the birds attack so yeah it's it's um I guess not everybody likes the birds. I thought everyone was kind of on board with this one. No, uh, so it was funny because Miguel, who was with us earlier on the show, um, after I had rewatched it, we hadn't talked about it, and he was just like, he, he basically was saying that's one of Hitchcock's weakest movies, easily. What? And I was just like, I can see why, uh, 
uh, we were we were pretty much, you know, talking about it. And for me, this is my opinion, is that I don't find the being attacked by birds compelling. Um, what? I don't because I, I'm not afraid of birds. So like there's no fear of them at all for me. So when I see that on film, it just it doesn't drive me to the point of being scared for the characters. It doesn't give me any type of either anxiety or suspense. Um, at a certain point, it gets annoying. Have you ever been bitten by a bird? No. Okay. We used so, to have a bird. I had a bird as a kid. It was a really cute blue crown conure, and it was the sweetest bird. It flew away at some point. But uh, it, I mean, it would bite you sometimes, and that shit hurt. Let me just tell you right now, like, it is not pleasant to be bitten by a bird, let alone, I can't oh, imagine I don't being bitten is. by a seagull or a crow or a raven or whatever. Um, I, I'm just shocked. I, I mean... I've had a, a bird like fly in my face and like the beat of its wings is like, like being whipped. It's an experience. <laughs> and I'm not saying that that's why the movie is so terrifying. No, I but, understand. I mean, it's, it's interesting because <sighs> I can't even explain it. Right. Like it's just scary that there's right. no control you can have over a bird. The bird can fly. You cannot like, you can't follow it. You can't just like decide you're going to off all of the birds in the area. It's like impossible. There is no defense. They don't care if they die. Like, it's like, I don't know. It's a weird alien type invasion. You don't know why they're here. You don't know what they want. And if you if you can understand an alien invasion and like why that's happening and get the scariness of that then i don't know why you're not getting the same sense from the birds <laughs> because the bird because physically looking at a bird does not scare me like i'm not fearful of the appearance of a bird like i even the most oh even God. the most like feared bird usually is something like a crow or a raven because they're black and they, you know, or even something like a, uh, now, now I'm blanking vultures, you know, like stuff like that. They just, I I've seen them and nothing about them. It makes like instills anything in me. I mean, that's also of part of it because you, birds are so unassuming and we come across them in our daily lives all the time. And, you don't think something so benign is going to attack you. Like that's also right. part of what makes it scary. Like this feels like I... Hitchcock, like putting his love of birds, whatever it is that he he's doing right with the birds. And just like, it's a full flex. Like this is a movie for me. I love birds. I want to scare people with birds and I guess it works. But like for me, it, it doesn't now. I will give the movie this. I do love the ending of the movie, not when the birds attack inside the house, but afterwards when they're trying to make their escape and all the birds are sitting right mm. outside the house, like kind of like waiting and mm. just like, you know, they're trying to like slowly get out of the house like that. I like, I, I appreciate that. But leading up to that, a lot of it is just like, 
uh, I don't know. I can't really buy this. I can't really buy this as a fear. And it, it's just, for me, it just doesn't, there's nothing compelling about that. It's just like, oh, God, there's birds attacking me. But there's nothing I wonder nothing if it's because compared. there's no soundtrack. Like, there is no music to oh, speak of, Oh, there's no music really? in this. And they really do a great job of, like, enhancing the bird sound. But mm-hmm. after a while, for me, it just got very, like, it got annoying <laughs> listening to the sound of, like, the birds squawking the entire time while they're attacking. And it's just to the point where I'm just what? like, oh, my God, like, can this scene just speed up? Please? Oh, my God. Because you're it, like, yeah, like, I can't I, believe how you feel about that. I guess we need to move on. Like, I can't. Yeah. Like, I can't. Two out of five. What? Yeah. Two out of five. It, it's one of his worst movies. You're joking. Me. You're It's jo- one of his oh worst movies. Oh, my God. Movies. We're moving on. We're moving on. Oh, my God. The birds. <laughs> The Birds is loosely based on a novelette by Daphne du Maurier, who also wrote the novel for Hitchcock's Rebecca. That that was based off of one of her novels as well. Uh, I say loosely because the movie shares no characters with the original story, and basically <laughs> the only thing that's the same is the bizarre bird event at a bayside town and the behavior of the birds in the original story. The pattern that the birds stop and start attacking is related to the ocean tides, so the characters use that to their advantage. The movie never explicitly says why the birds attack when they do, although you can probably assume it's the same reason. And actually, there's a restaurant in the movie called the Tides Restaurant. Hey, look at that. Hey, look at that. (laughs) Now, uh, something like 3,200 birds were trained for the movie, and Hitchcock noted that the ravens were the smartest but the seagulls were the most vicious. One bird in particular basically hated Rod Taylor so much that he attacked him even when the cameras weren't rolling. Taylor said, Every morning if we were on the set together, he'd come over and bite me. I hated him and he hated me. End quote. Much of the movie was shot in the studio since Hitchcock disliked filming on location so much, which I never understood that. Now, all the better to control all the animal extras and the special effects needed to make all of it seamless. The movie featured over 300 effect shots, which is a pitiful number by today's standards, of course. But And the final shot is composed of 32 separately filmed elements. The scene where Melanie is attacked in the bedroom was a week-long shoot, and it was extremely difficult for Tippi Hedren because instead of using mechanical birds, as they had told her, they used real birds. And it was a total shock to her until the very last minute. The assistant director, not even Hitchcock, had to tell her the bad news that the mechanical birds were a no-go. Hedren called it the worst week of my life. The birds were attached to her clothes by nylon strings. Cary Grant visited the set during this crazy week and told Hedren, you're the bravest woman I've ever met. She, of course, (laughs) sustained some injuries, specifically being cut in the face by a bird. And when it was all over, Hedren was so exhausted and traumatized that she was hospitalized for a week afterward. The scenes where Rod Taylor carries her in his arms is actually her double since she was still recovering. Wow. Now, I don't think we could talk about Tippi Hedren and Hitchcock without talking about the damning accusations that Hedren made in her memoir. We already know that Hitchcock had a bad habit of becoming obsessed with the blonde, beautiful actress in his movies. So it could come as no shock 
that he was obsessed with Hedron. I mean, just looking at how he saw her in a TV commercial and plucked her from relative obscurity and gave her a huge film to carry on her shoulders might have been a red flag. Yeah, so Tippy revealed that the obsession turned to sexual harassment. One afternoon, he was dropping her off at her hotel when the back in the back of the limo, with no, this is a direct quote, with no warning, he threw himself on top of me and tried to kiss me, end quote. She rejected his advances and the behavior between them on the set of the birds, quote, chilled to a polite professional distance, end quote. Hedron feels that the scene where she was attacked with real birds was done in retaliation. She later said, to be the object of somebody's obsession is a really awful feeling when you can't return it. Here's a clip of Tippy Hedren being interviewed and talking about the whole situation. You know, the birds took six months to film. And uh, it wasn't until the very ending of, of the filming that um, I started noticing that um, uh, he kept watching me, staring at me. And uh, whether we were on the set or whatever, he'd be standing off talking to people, carrying on a conversation and staring at me. Eventually that becomes um, uh, almost like stalking. And uh, it was a very uncomfortable situation. And um, uh, I became very, very good at getting out. I've always, I would always have somewhere to go, had to be somewhere, had something to do, had to um, uh, have a meeting with makeup, had to have a meeting with whatever I could think of to, um, to get out of a situation. Back to the movie. Uh, the Birds was nominated for just one Academy Award, Best Special Effects, which makes sense. It lost to Cleopatra. Kind of hard to <laughs> beat that. Now, tip, but Tippi Hedren won a Golden Globe for Most Promising Newcomer. The last movie we're going to discuss in depth is 1964's Marnie. The letterbox synopsis reads, Marnie is a thief, a liar, and a cheat. When her new boss, Mark Rutland, catches on to her routine kleptomania, she finds herself being blackmailed. It stars Tippi Hedren once again in the title role, along with Sean Connery as Mark Rutland. Hedren found out that she won the part of Marnie while filming The Birds, the scene on a hilltop with Rod Taylor. Uh, this was only after Princess Grace Kelly, at this point, turned down the role. Hitchcock wanted Kelly to come out of retirement for the role. But once the negotiations reached the public, the people of Monaco didn't like the idea of their princess playing a compulsive thief. Hmm. That's, mm -hmm. uh, uh, that's a very cool what if. Paul Newman, among others, was offered the role of Mark Rutland, but he wasn't interested. He ended up starring in Hitchcock's next movie, Torn Curtain in 1966. Sean Connery was under a real const really constrictive James Bond contract, so he was choosy about his movies, but even turning down non-Bond movies left and right. The production studio behind 007 asked him what he wanted to do, and when he said he wanted to work with Hitchcock, they made it happen. Funny enough, he asked to see the Marnie script to make sure he wasn't going to be another spy. Hitchcock Hitchcock's agent told him Cary Grant never saw a Hitchcock script ahead of time. Connery simply said, I'm not Cary Grant. End quote. Now, behind <laughs> the scenes, there were signs that the band was breaking up. This was Bernard 
Herman's last score for Hitchcock, as well as editor George Tomasini's last film with Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. So we we watched Marnie. It was my first time watching Marnie, and I think yes. it was yours as well. Um, uh, I hated it. <laughs> oh, I didn't like it either. It was. I found it super problematic. Um, yeah. So she has a the character Marnie has a lot of trauma, and she's a kleptomaniac, uh, a serial thief. She she, um, she gets married to Sean Connery's character because he blackmails her. Uh, yeah, I, I, th- I just think this movie is, didn't age well at all. Um, a lot of cliches in this movie. I don't know if they came from this movie or if this movie just perpetuated it. Like at one point Marnie says, if you love me, let me go. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> I've heard that exactly. a million times. Um, yeah, there's a lot more of that whole women being perceived as some sort of wild animal deal happening in this movie. Um, Marnie says, you think I'm some sort of animal you've caught? And he's like, yeah, I do. Yeah. <laughs> like he doesn't like refute that. No, he doesn't claim. Um, oh my God. I just, at one point, Sean Connery's character is reading the book sexual aberrations of the criminal female because she's afraid of uh, being touched by a man. She's frigid for lack of a better word. And that's like a huge issue that he's trying to solve. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I just don't think this, this plot was done correctly. Like if you had this character that had all this trauma I don't think she should have ever been sexually blackmailed. No, no, I don't think so either. And then Um, she was raped. Even worse. Yeah, even even worse. And the movie doesn't do a good job of like leading you into that. We, they, they make it known and it's obvious that our main character has something going on when either she sees the color red or when there's lightning strikes, like obviously something happens to her, mm-hmm. but it doesn't even give you like an indication, like what could it possibly be? Like everything is just leading to the very end where they finally do the reveal and mm-hmm. all this stuff they reveal in like the last like couple of minutes of that movie. It's like, you could have teased this somehow earlier in the movie. It felt um, very like, dumpy at the end like here's a dump of everything that happened that would somewhat give you a reason to like the movie like it was right like how how spellbound was spellbound was was like trying so hard to be like the second coming of spellbound and it just didn't like he's trying to fix her but to his benefit not to her benefit Uh, it's just problematic it's very problematic and i don't think that any of it works really well at all just because like you start losing the thread of the plot like halfway through the movie when they get Mm. married and you almost can't figure out why did he marry her is it that he did fall in love with her did he feel bad for her is he trying to figure Mm -hmm. her out um 
there's so many things that the the movie just doesn't make sense or that's implant in the plot for you to make sense of it. Their love story mm-hmm. doesn't make sense at all. Um, no. The putting Tippi Hedren in this role just cast her in a bad light. Just like I thought it was cool. Like the way the movie started. Oh, she's a thief. Like she goes around and she's like, you mm-hmm. know, she's stealing from different places. And the is she gonna get shot caught? with her from behind and yeah. stuff. Like that's good. I love the scene of her trying to steal um, the money from uh, Sean Connery's company. Yes, and the, he has this huge wide shot that shows her on one end and a lot of floor in the foreground, and then the uh, the maid. Not the maid, but uh, the, the, um, the the clean janitor, lady, or clean lady, on the other side of her, just like you see. And are they going to see each other? Is she going to get caught? And there's this great suspense in that moment. So like, I thought it was like almost Hitchcock, almost great, but it wasn't great. No, because it just <laughs> no. like nose dives. Oof. It nosedives because I understand if he is like attracted to her, is curious about her, um, wants to get to know her better, and maybe in the course of them like talking and her trying to do her um, theft, they like he figures out that there's some trauma there. It's like when she goes to his office and there's a thunderstorm, yeah, and he calmly watches her have this fit. Yeah, like it's like, like yeah, no big deal that she's like. It's super casual. What is that about? It doesn't make any sense. If someone came into my office and had this like horrible reaction to thunderstorms, I wouldn't just like calmly be sitting at my desk watching them go through this. I'd be like, oh my God, are you okay? Like, what's wrong? Do you need anything? Sit down, please. Like, it wouldn't be this calm thing. And then I wouldn't go over there and like force myself on them either because that's what he does. He goes over and like physically starts like hugging her and touching her and like kisses her out of the blue. Like... She just had a friggin' attack. Don't you think she needs a a second? Like, it was it was all sorts of wrong. I didn't support Sean Connery's character. No, I didn't think he was redeemed at the end of the movie in any way because I think the movie wants you to forgive him for for the rape. Yeah, pretty much. They and they like, want absolutely you to. not. Uh, yeah. I think there's only one character that I enjoy watching in this entire movie, and that is. Uh, the character uh, Lil Main uh, Main Waring, played by mm-hmm. Diane Baker. I think she like she has she's like clever. She's witty. Uh, mm-hmm. She is on to them, even if the audience doesn't know what they're really on to. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, she's on to them. She's like trying to, you know, out uh, our lead actress, you know, to the person who she stole money from and like, she's trying to do stuff behind the scenes. I thought mm-hmm. she was an interesting character, but the movie around our protagonists is just not a very good movie. Mm. Mm. So Diane Baker, you already mentioned her. She plays Lil. Um, she has said that for the scene where she eavesdrops on Mark and Marnie talking, Hitchcock didn't like how she was emoting. So he came up, put his hands on her face and physically changed it to the expression he wanted for the scene. This is 
obviously super rude, unprofessional, highly inappropriate. It's almost as if Hitchcock had given up at this point. I mean, with everything we've said about Marnie, it just feels such an imbalance with everything else in his filmography. Um, We know that Hitchcock didn't like filming outside and on location. We said that many times. Um, So to film the horses riding, he put the horses on a giant treadmill Uh, Crew members warned him about how dangerous this could be. This had never been done. But when they tried it, it worked out just fine, thankfully. Um, A fun fact about Marnie's horse, it's named Forio, and Forion is Greek for stolen goods. Uh Uh (laughs) Aha! Now, there is a psycho reference in this movie as well. When Lil says, I always thought a girl's best friend was her mother. It's basically echoing of Norman Bates' line, a boy's best friend is his mother. Scary enough as it is, Hitchcock inserted a bunch of Edgar Allan Poe references into the movie because he was a fanboy. He changed Marnie's mother's name to Bernice, uh, Berenice, uh, and that's a short short story by Poe. The biggest change is when he gave Marnie and her mother the last name Edgar. In the novel, the last name is Elmer. Okay, so let's get to the meat of the issue with Marnie and the drama behind the scenes. Sean Connery's character, we already said, rapes Marnie, and the character blackmails her into marrying him. Even calls he even calls himself a sexual blackmailer. Knows that she can't bear to be touched and has some sort of trauma haunting her, and still forces himself on her while on their honeymoon. This was such a point of contention for one screenwriter, Evan Hunter, the writer behind The Birds, that Hitchcock fired him. I read an article in The New Yorker which puts it this way, The drama itself is a story of sexual violence, which is inflicted both physically and mentally by the lead male character, a wealthy businessman named Mark Rutland, played by Sean Connery, on Hedron's title character. The movie's story and its backstory converge rendering the cruelty that went into its production palpable in the viewing. Mm. Now, that quote mentions the backstory, and that's because the ongoing frustrations between Tippi Hedren and Hitchcock was boiling over. They had a major falling out after Hitchcock sexually assaulted her on the set. Tippi says this in her memoir, quote, I've never gone into detail on this, and I never will. I'll simply say that he suddenly grabbed me and put his hands on me. It was sexual, it was perverse, and it was ugly, and I didn't have, and I couldn't have been more shocked and repulsed. The harder I fought him, the more aggressive he became. When he started adding threats as if he could do anything to me that was worse than what he was trying to do to me at that moment. End quote. Because she was signed to a contract under him, he threatened to ruin her career. She replied, do what you have to do, and stormed out. Hitchcock kept his promise to ruin Hedren's career, consistently telling potential directors and collaborators who wanted to work with Hedren that she was unavailable. It was three years before she was cast in another film, and it was in a supporting role. She never managed to star in any projects that were as famous or lucrative as The Birds or Marnie, and she says Hitchcock never spoke to her directly again. Now, There's been loads of Hitchcock experts and biographers who have defended Hitchcock and tried to fact-check the allegations, saying this couldn't have happened at this time because of shooting schedules and whatever else. 
and many more crew members and relatives of those who worked with Hitchcock have stood up for him. To those people, Tippi Hedren says this, they weren't there. How about that? I was the one living that life. They weren't. How can they possibly have anything to say about it? End quote. The tumultuous relationship between Hedren and Hitchcock became the subject of a TV movie from 2012 starring Sienna Miller and Toby Jones. Uh, just as a side note here, I feel like it's we're we're basically seeing that nowadays um, with so many people, so many women who come out um, who make the allegations because of the fact that things happen to them. And again, there's people who always stand up for the ones being accused, um, you mm-hmm. know, oh, it couldn't have happened or why should we believe it or anything like that. And I think it's very important uh, to say that we should believe because um, they do have everything to lose when they do come out because of stuff mm-hmm. like that, the perception of people. Uh, now, yeah. back to the actual uh, thoughts of the actual movie and everything else. Marnie was a super divisive movie. And received generally poor reviews, as you can tell by us as well. It didn't do so bad at the box office, though it didn't reach the success of Psycho. For the remaining decade and going into the 70s, Hitchcock made just four films. Torn Curtain in 1966, starring Paul Newman and Julie Andrews. Topaz in 1969. Frenzy in 1972. And lastly, Family Plot in 1976. Hitchcock never did win that elusive Best Director Oscar, but in 1968, he did receive the honorary Irvin G. Thalberg Memorial Award at the Oscars. His acceptance speech was hilariously short. Quote, thank you very much indeed. End quote. (laughs) After a career spanning six decades and more than 50 feature films, Hitchcock died peacefully in his sleep in Bel Air, California on April 29, 1980. He was knighted the same year he died, making him forevermore Sir Alfred Hitchcock. To finish off our Alfred Hitchcock series, we'll talk really quick about some more influential things. Um, He popularized the term MacGuffin in film. Uh, Merriam-Webster Dictionary has this to say on the MacGuffin entry. The first person to use MacGuffin as a word for a plot device was Alfred Hitchcock. He borrowed it from an old shaggy dog story in which some passengers on a train interrogate a fellow passenger carrying a large, strange-looking package. The fellow says the package contains a MacGuffin, which he explains is used to catch tigers in the Scottish Highlands. When the group protests that there are no tigers in the Highlands, the passenger replies, "'Well, then this must not be a MacGuffin.'" Hitchcock apparently appreciated the way the mysterious package holds the audience's attention and builds suspense. He recognized that an audience anticipating a solution to a mystery will continue to follow the story, even if the initial interest grabber turns out to be irrelevant. Now, there's one really interesting subject we haven't talked about yet, and that's the mystery surrounding the five missing Hitchcocks, or the five lost Hitchcock films. It all started when Hitchcock signed with Paramount Pictures back in 1953, and his contract very importantly stipulated that eight years after the initial release of each film he directed, all ownership and rights would revert back to Hitchcock. Back then, there was no home video market, so the studio saw no problem relinquishing the rights to the films after they had run their course in theaters. The five movies Hitchcock owned outright were Vertigo, Rear Window, Rope, the Trouble with Harry, 
and the man who knew too much. Instead of regularly distributing the movies, Hitchcock basically banned them from being seen by the general public. Hitchcock would never give his permission for the films to be exhibited, and even went so far as to have all prints removed from circulation and destroyed. These amazing films weren't seen for nearly 30 years. The effective ban created a black market for these films, with fans holding underground screenings. Many speculate that Hitchcock left the five films to his daughter, Patricia, as an inheritance, but it was never clear. In the early 80s, Universal finally acquired the films from the Hitchcock estate for a rumored $6 million. It was obviously a wise investment. Now, before we leave you tonight, uh, here wrapping up our fifth week, fifth and final week of Hitchcock, uh, there could be a overlasting question or overlying question uh what made hitchcock special why is it that he made horror movies or and why why is it that we love watching them and i think there's no better way than to have the man speak for himself now the question why do people pay money to be scared do you know the answer of course not I earn my living doing it. <laughs> Better not to question it. What would my starving wife and child do without us? <laughs> if this is your first time listening, go ahead and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and many more. And if you like us, give us a review on Apple Podcasts because it goes a very long way for us. Don't forget to check us out on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and reviews. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Always Critic Pod. Well, that has been our show. I'm Rico. And I'm Jessica. And this has been the Always the Critic Podcast. Always the Critic Podcast.